Amen. If you're part of the youth group that's 6th through 12th grade, um, you are dismissed now to head upstairs. Pastor Daniel will, will meet you up, up there. Just keep you updated with our youth pastor search. We, we have somebody that the Lord has brought uh, to our attention, and we're going through that process with them. So keep that in your prayers. And also, I just want to quickly, uh, I didn't, I forgot to mention it, but I want to quickly mention something. Uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're wavering whether or not there's a God, maybe, maybe this little short story will persuade you a little. So last year, about this time, we, we uh, got asked if we wanted a tr- uh, not a truckload, but a whole bunch of bottled water. And we took it, and we've been using it for ministry, for volunteers, for around the church, and different things. So the church hasn't, uh, haven't, we haven't had to buy bottled water in about a year. And we just last week went down to our last case of water. And I was walking down the hallway, and I was, I, I may have said it out loud because I like to talk to myself, amen. And I, I said or had the thought that, we're going to, I need to make note, we're going to have to buy some water for our volunteers and all the things we do around here. And not 10 minutes later, my phone rings. You guys want some water? Sir, <laughs> so they were supposed to bring four pallets of water. Behind that curtain are 10 pallets of water. So we're going to move a bunch over to the motor view for storage and use it here for, to bless and everything. So, you know, coincidence or God? Coincidence or God? God is blessing us. There's so many things happening. I, I, he's using us. He's doing things in our midst. So be open and ready for God to use you. So last week, we need to get started here. So I I could talk about this stuff all day. But last week we began with our study through the book of 1 Kings. And I am calling this study A Country in Chaos. We started that. As I said last week, this book is about the country, the nation of Israel. We will uh, will see a a country, this this country, this history documented in 1 Kings. We will see that for the most part they begin in in unity. Yes, you could debate how tight-knit that unity was. But for the most part, they begin in unity. They move into conflict with one another. And then as a nation, they become divided. And to be true to life, we will see many different people play out different roles. And there's some characters in 1 Kings, let me tell you. We're going to see some of them today. But we're going to, we're going to not only tie in uh, the parallels to what we see happening in our country, but we're all going to also look at people, uh, characters in 1 Kings, and, and see how we may or may not relate to some of them, Right? Some are good and some not so good. But hopefully we can learn and apply some of these lessons as a country, as a nation, and also some of these lessons from some of these not so good decisions that some of these people make uh, in this book. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask that we would open our hearts and minds, Lord. I pray that... You would strengthen me in such a time as right now, Lord, to bring this message you've laid on my heart. 
Lord, I pray that I would just be the vessel. God, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers. Lord, and I thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to dive right in today. We're going to dive right into 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read the first uh, 12 verses. And I just love some of the names that we're going to say in here. And, and if, if, if some of you may be planning on ha- having a, a, a baby, an infant, here's some good names in here. Maybe you want to write down to name some of your, your kids. All right. I'm going to probably stop and have you pronounce some of them with me. I did a word study on each one of these, and I have a, a program that will say them, and I practice pronouncing them, so I sound all professional, and all I have to say about that is good luck to me. Verse 1, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And the Lord may keep his promise to me. And David goes on to say what that promise was. If your descendants... Watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Speaking of of, uh, David's line, his family lineage, the line, that in that line there will always be somebody on the throne. And that has taken place, but that's a whole other message. We're going to pause there for a minute, and I just want to uh, make a a few statements about just those first uh, four verses. How many of you know it takes strength to follow the Lord? It takes strength to follow the Lord. David is calling out his son to be strong, to be strong, to be strong in the way he is to follow the ways of the Lord. And most of the time, most of the time when, when we, we're going to see more of Solomon a little bit in 1 Kings, but most of the time when, when we look at it in our own lives and in in really in such a time as this, most of the time it's not the popular thing, the popular thing to do, is it? But let me reassure each of you this morning, the call still stands for each of us to be strong. To be strong and show yourself a man or woman of God. I just want to make those statements right there in those first uh, four verses for each of us to understand. Because it is with this command, this calling, David goes on to identify. He goes on after he says to be strong in the ways of the Lord, right? To be strong. Then he goes on, David goes on to identify a few people slash problems that he has left undone that Solomon will have to deal with. Lucky boy, right? So let's look at that. Verse 5, we're going to pick back up. Now you yourself, okay, so David is still talking to his son. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. 
what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Gether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Brazili, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have, remember, you have with you Shami, son of Gera, the Benjamite from uh, Bahiram. Everybody say Bahiram. That's a fun one. The Benjamite from Bahiram who called down bitter curses on me that day, I, the day I went to Manaam, when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, let me, let me pause for a second, verse 9. But now, do not consider him innocent. He's still talking about uh, Shimei. But do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. And then verse 10. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, 7 years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. And his rule was firmly established. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at how Solomon dealt with each of these people uh, slash problems that his father, King David, left him in the rest of this chapter. I don't, what I'm saying is I don't want to read the rest of the chapter, but we're going to dissect each one of these quickly so you can see uh, the problem, how Solomon dealt with these people slash problems. His father, King David, King David, left him. And then see how we can apply what we learn for our own lives. There is a lesson to learn in this. Are you with me? First person problem, David does not mention him, but it is a problem that David could have dealt with, but he didn't. And that is Adonijah. Adonijah. We met him in chapter 1. Remember, Adonijah is Solomon's older half-brother. If you recall from last week, last week he tried to set himself as king. Uh, set himself up as king without David knowing. Remember, he went outside the city, had a big party, and, and slaughtered uh, all these animals, and, and he was having a party. He was going to set himself up a king, and of course, that all came to an end, if you remember last week. Solomon spares his life, if you remember that, if he will only fall in line. Listen, listen, Adjaniah, you you can... You tried to do something evil and rebel, and it wasn't your right or your place. But Solomon says to his older half-brother, I'm not going to strike you down in rebellion if you will just obey and stay in line. And for the most part, he agrees in word. Well, here in chapter 2, we see that he decides to defy his older brother Solomon, who is king, by the way, by requesting that Abishag uh, becomes his wife. 
Abishag is a young virgin who was selected to take care of King David. You can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 1. She was his caretaker. The Bible says that King David uh, couldn't stay warm at night, so they searched the country for a, a, a young virgin lady, and it was Abishag, the Shumanite, who they selected to be the caretaker and to lie with David uh, to keep him warm, and there was no sexual relations between them. Those are in the Bible. Those aren't my words. If you notice, last week I tried to avoid them, but there they are. Okay, so... That's what's taking place. So Adonijah, he wants Abishag. Now that David is gone, he wants her. He goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. He goes, you know, instead of being, I'll be honest with you, instead of being a man and going to Solomon to make his request, what does he do? He go to Solomon's mommy. Hey, I'm going to go to mommy because mommy can put in a word for me, right? So he goes to her, and she takes the request to Solomon, which is kind of interesting why she would even do it. But here's the question as you read through this. Why is this an act of defiance towards Solomon? Why would Solomon care that his older half-brother would marry her? Why would it even matter to him? I found this pretty interesting. The Greek historian Herodotus says that among the Persians, a new king inherited the previous king's harem. And that to possess the harem was taken as a title to the throne. So the new king would take all, all the old king's concubines in his harem and whatever that looks like. I praise the Lord, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I can assure you, right? I love my wife and one wife is enough. I heard a saying the other day. I don't even know if I should say this. You know the saying, happy wife, uh, happy life? I had some friends from California that said, forgive me for saying this, but they said, happy wife, put down the knife. <laughs> That's just in fun. But I, thought, I said, someday I'm going to use that. Well, there it is. But understand, so a harem, so if, if one king became king and he took over the, the harem, the other kings, that, that was a sign that he was a king. He's just established himself. Weird, I know, but that's, that's what took place. But understand, there's no such custom is shown in, in the Bible, right? We do, however, we do, however, have Absalom, King David's oldest son, as you know his story, in his defiance to take uh, the throne from his father David, uh, David flees, right? That's when Shami curses him while he's fleeing from Absalom. After Absalom comes in, and for whatever reason David flees because he doesn't want to cause problems with his oldest son, Absalom takes his father's harem, his concubines, whatever that looks like, he takes them, the Bible says, to a rooftop where he sleeps with them for the whole city to see what he's doing. Because it is a big statement. Because he's saying, I am king. I have taken this over from my father. So there's no custom really per se, but we kind of see it being taken out. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel 16. So Solomon 
Now understand with that in mind, so Solomon took Adjaniah's request for Abishag, who had been part of King David's harem, even though he never had sexual relations with her, as a sign that he was still plotting against him. He was basically insulting him. And remember, he didn't do it to his face. He went through his mom. So that very day, Solomon gave the order to have Adjaniah struck down. He broke his oath. He's not staying in line, so he took care of that person problem. Second person problem we see is uh, Abathar, the priest. He was part of, and I have the references for you if you want to read through the rest of the chapter later on. I'm paraphrasing it for a reason. So Abathar, the priest, he was part of Adjaniah's group to set up as king, right? So he was in rebellion to begin with. He went out with Adjaniah outside the city. He was giving his blessing for him to be the king. And that alone would probably be a reason for Solomon to, to take care of business. But there's more to his story. You see, he is a descendant of the priest Eli, who had two wicked sons, who had no regard for the Lord. Eli did nothing to correct them, the Bible says. Eli, their father, who was the priest of the time, was an enabler. He, went, he let his sons do wicked things in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord declared that the house of Eli, his descendants, would be stripped of their ministry for dishonoring him. So the story goes on that the two sons were killed in battle, and when Eli heard the news, uh, when the, somebody came from the battle and he heard the news, what had happened to his two sons, the Bible says he fell back in his chair and he broke his neck and he died. And now we see the fulfillment because Abathur is in the same descendant. He's in the lineage, the line uh, of, of Eli the priest. And now we see fulfillment of prophecy taking place. Solomon... He sends Abathur, the, the, the house of Eli, packing and replaces him with Zadok, the new priest. So he didn't strike him down, but he sent him packing. The Bible says he sent him back to be a farmer. And, and you're the high priest? And the king demotes you and sends you out. Fulfillment of prophecy. So that's the second person. Now we see this third person, this third problem that Solomon has to deal with that his, that his dad left him with, and that is Joab the general. Why didn't David punish Joab for the two murders he mentioned in verse 5? And you can find their stories in 2 Samuel 3 and 2 Samuel 20. Why didn't David, if he's so upset, why didn't he deal with these two uh, people at the time? Now, most believe that he didn't because it was out of loyalty to Joab, his general. And the general could have argued why he did do it. So most believe that David just didn't want to deal with it. And out of loyalty, he was just going to let it go. But obviously, it was a big issue for David because he was direct when he said, do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Do you think David was still a little upset with Joab? He's given orders to his son as he's about to pass away. Also remember Joab was part of Adonijah's attempt to become king when David's, without David's blessing. 
So in that story, in 1 Kings 2, 28 through 35, you read at the end of this part about Joab, Solomon had to deal with all his rebellion. It says that when Joab heard about Abathur the priest, it says Joab ran to the altar and grabbed a hold of the horn of the altar for, for refuge. So when you hear his case, and, and when, uh, when the, the Benai went to, to do carry out Solomon's order to strike him down, he refused to come out. Benai goes back and tells Solomon he refuses to let go of the horn of the altar, and Solomon says, do it anyway. The Bible says, struck him down and buried him in the desert. And then Joab or excuse me, then Solomon replaces him with Benai. That's how you say his name, with Benai over his army. He becomes the new general. And as you read through these stories, you see how Solomon uses Benai. He's the one that's going out striking all these people down. And then the fourth person this morning, the fourth person, the fourth problem Solomon dealt with is Shami. It's pronounced Shami. Now, he was a member of King Saul's, the first king. Remember, King David is the second king. King Saul, he's a member of King Saul's clan who had openly supported Absalom's rebellion against David, which I mentioned earlier. When David was fleeing, uh, Shami was just throwing insults at the king. In fact, during that process, I believe it was Joab said, do you want me to strike this guy down? Because he is just cursing the king, and, and David says, no, don't do anything about it. So he takes the insults, but he didn't forget, did he? Because he'd mentioned it to Solomon. So David, he chose not to punish him, but knew he was a threat to his son Solomon. So Solomon acted with restraint by restricting a Shimei to the city of Jerusalem. In, this, in, in 2 Kings 36 through 46, you can read all about this. He said, if you don't leave the city, if you don't leave the city of Jerusalem at all, you are confined to the city limits. You cannot leave. If you will stay right here, obviously David or Solomon must have thought that it would be hard for him to cause a rebellion of any sort if he's landlocked in the city. So he says, if you stay in the city, you will be safe. And Shimei makes an oath with Solomon, declares with an oath, says, I won't leave and I think the Bible says two years went on. And after these two years, sometime later, it says that Shimei left the city of Jerusalem. He was chasing after two servants. He found out where they were that had run away. And he went to get them and he brought them back to the city. Well, somebody reports to King Solomon that Shimei had left the city. He had broken his oath. Well, how many of you know what Benai did to Shimei? He struck him down, the Bible says. He struck him down with the sword because he broke his oath. It's an encouraging story, isn't it? So here we are at the point in our study where we look for the application. There's application here. It might appear... It might appear that our application is to strike down all our problems with the sword. Can I get an amen? amen. 
It, it, it may appear there. Pastor Jay may be alluding, wow, Pastor Jay's giving me permission to deal with my problems ever so severely. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I am not. I am, Pastor Jay gave me permission to do this. No, I did not. Anybody that opposes us should be struck down. That, that's not. Please, please hear me. In the physical world, that is not what, uh, what our application is this morning. In fact, it is just the opposite. When you look at the words of Jesus, found in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 31, he says, But I tell you, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who care for, excuse me, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if someone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Would you strike yourself? No, so Jesus said, we don't strike others. So that's not the application. I'm sorry if that disappoints some of you today. That's not it. So what is the application, the takeaway this morning? Here's what I believe it is. I have it for you on the screen. As born-again disciples of Jesus, we should look, look to our new life, our future as believers, by taking care of any problems we have left unresolved. That's a wordy, big application, but it is pretty direct if you think about it. The big, unresolved problem, I believe, that needs to be struck down in our lives, there's, there's one that I believe fits each one of these problems that Solomon dealt with, and I believe if it was dealt with in these ways that I'm going to uh, share with you what I believe the Lord showed me, that this would have may have most likely would have taken care of most of these issues if they would have been done at the time. The big unresolved problem, I believe that needs to be struck down in our lives if we truly want to have a vibrant, growing faith with Jesus is this. In one word, it is forgive. Forgive. Ask for forgiveness when we mess up and hurt someone. All the guys, raise your hand and say amen. amen. Ask. It's not that women don't either, but I'm a man, so I can be direct with men, right? Ask for forgiveness when we mess up and hurt someone. And the second part of this, take ownership of our unforgiveness we have towards someone who may have hurt us. So it's a two-pronged thing with this word forgive. Now just think how each of these stories would have played out if each of these five men, including David, I remember there was only four, but I want to include David in this. Just think how each of these stories would have played out if each of these five men would have humbled themselves and sought forgiveness as well as dealt with their own unforgiveness. Think about it. 
their stories would look a lot different. A lot of pride involved, right? A lot of egotism involved. So didn't happen. And just a side note, when we think about a country in chaos, just think how much different our country might be right now if all of us, perhaps, whatever that looks like, would humble themselves and ask for forgiveness and learn to forgive. Let's go somewhere else with it. Just think of how you, just think of how you may live out the rest of your life if you would humble yourself and seek forgiveness as well as dealing with any unforgiveness you may have. Now please understand, I've met a lot of fellow believers over time. I've met with fellow believers that have come in and shared with me that they, they can never forgive this person or that person for something that was very serious that had been done to them. They said, I can never forgive them and their life is miserable. We're going to talk about that in a minute. They can never forgive them. And I would ask, well, well why can't you forgive them? And a lot of believers have this attitude about forgiveness. If I forgive them, they're going to do it to me again. Listen, forgiveness, forgiving somebody doesn't mean you lay down in your doormat again and you're like, okay, now I've forgiven them, I'm going to open. You can forgive somebody and release the bitterness from your heart and that doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them again to allow them to hurt you again. So many people believe that. Well, if I forgive them, we're going to be buddies again and they're going to hurt. No. Hey, I forgive you. Have a great life. I know you, but you're, you're over there. I'm over here because it was a severe hurt and I'm still overcoming it, but I'm not going to carry bitterness in my whole life against you. Do you see the difference? It's important that we remember that. Look at what the Bible says about seeking forgiveness for our mess-ups. Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile to your brother, then come and offer your gift. These are the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5, which I say, wow, did you hear what he just said? Jesus is telling us that our gift to him, our gift to the Lord is second when we, uh, when we need to ask for forgiveness. It's second. Think about that for a minute. God, the Bible says, God loves a cheerful giver. God says to bring his first fruits to him. God says to test him in our gift giving and see if he will not open the floodgates of heaven to pour down on those who trust and obey in the area of giving. So giving is biblical. Jesus is saying it's important to give. He's saying all this, but he's saying, wait, as much as God loves a cheerful giver and he loves us to give, to show our obedience and how much he blesses us back, Jesus is saying, I don't want your gift. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, God loves our gifts, but here Jesus is saying, don't bring it until you have asked your brother or sister to forgive you for hurting them in some way. 
That's a powerful statement. It's, it's a great act of humility that Jesus is making to each of us. We need to seek the forgiveness of others above everything that we do. Above everything. Now let's look at what happens if someone comes and asks for forgiveness and we choose not to forgive. I believe these words by Carolyn Miller helps us to begin to understand. I believe I have them for you on the projector. She writes, unforgiveness is a poison that shrivels the heart. Our tenderness, when talking about the tenderness it shrivels the heart. It means a person cannot truly live in the present as they're always thinking about the past. You see, living in the past that she's talking about with unforgiveness has a harmful effect upon a person's physical health, doesn't it? Heart problems, high blood pressure, etc. All these things are documented for people that can't forgive, that have bitterness in them. It shrivels our heart. It causes us to have physical problems. Living in the past with unforgiveness affects our relationships. And it doesn't just affect the relation, it, it, it does affect the relationship we have when we can't forgive somebody, but it overflows to all of our relationships around us. And honestly, I, over my years of counseling and meeting people, I believe it is the number one problem in relationships being able to let go and forgive. Amen. Other things unforgiveness does, the Bible says unforgiveness causes bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 calls it, calls it a bitter root. That means it's deep. It's a bitter root. That's why it affects everything else around us. We have to dig it up. We have to deal with it. Unforgiveness affects our prayers. Did you know that? It affects our prayers. The Bible says that we have to forgive because he's forgiven us. So the big question is how do we deal with unforgiveness? Here's the tie-in now to, the, to our scripture today. This is where we get to strike it down. We get to strike it down. We get to strike it down, right? This is in the spiritual sense now. Now you have permission you can strike it down. Okay, you can strike it down. It's a decision. You and I have to strike it down. Here it is. We have to treat it as a serious offense in the eyes of God. God has asked us to forgive. Assume full responsibility for your unforgiving spirit. Confess your resentment. Don't just confess unforgiveness. You know, like... Lord, I, I confess I have unforgiveness in my heart. Oh, okay, that's, that's coming out of the denial stage. Now be honest with God about how you really feel, right? How do you really feel? God can handle it. Say, Lord, I, I have unforgiveness in my heart. I just want vengeance with that person. I want to get even, God. I want to harm them. Confess it. Talk it out with the Lord. You know what? I, I got news for you. He's a great big God. He can handle it. And by the way, he knows what you're going to say before you say it. He just wants you to say it so you understand what you, how you feel. So truly confess it 
And when you're comfortable, the Bible says confess one to another so that we can pray for each other. So when you're comfortable with a brother or sister, you can go to them and you trust them. You say, I need to confess some unforgiveness in my heart. Maybe it's the person. Maybe it's somebody else that could help you go to that person. Acknowledge it as unchristlike. Don't try to sweep it under the rug. What would Jesus do? Jesus would forgive. Jesus did forgive. Begin praying for the other person. Begin praying for them. We just read about that in Matthew 5. You know, here's something to think about too. Maybe the person that you have unforgiveness to isn't even aware that they have hurt you. Because in your mind, you're thinking, if they were just asking for forgiveness, it would be easier to forgive them. But maybe they don't even know that they've hurt you. I, I can think back years and years ago. I had a really good friend when I was, uh, he's still a good friend, when I was a new believer in Christ. And he, he did or said something, and it happened over and over time, that my perception was that he was offending me, and I started to get unforgiveness in my heart. And the Lord spoke to me because I was a young believer. And when you're a young believer, you're full of zeal, right? You want to do everything the Bible says. When you get older, you're like, well, you know, maybe. You're supposed to laugh there. I read Matthew 18. Go to your brother and talk it out. So I went to this, this friend of mine. And I said, I need to talk to you. And I started to spill my heart about, you know, my perception, how he'd hurt me, this and that. And he looked at me like a dog looking at a new dish. What are you talking about? And he started to apologize. I'm sorry. I, in my own perception, and then I apologized to him. And we became great friends. So sometimes what we perceive, our feelings are real. We get hurt, that is real. But we need to acknowledge if that's what the person really meant to say or do. And if it was, maybe you're going to make that aware of them and they can apologize. And that's how friendships grow. That's something to think about when it comes to unforgiveness. Ask God if he would have you... Do something specific on behalf, on behalf of the other person. Acts of kindness. Ooh. Maybe get their favorite coffee drink and take it to them and just give it to them. What's the Bible say? And if they've deliberately hurt you and you're doing kind things to them, the Bible says what? Kind words turn away wrath. Heap burning coals upon their head. Because in the long run, you're going to begin to release your unforgiveness and you're going to feel better about yourself. What happens with them, you can't control. How many people in this life, in this world, can you control? How many? Hold up your hand if you know the answer. And it's not your spouse. It's you. You can change you. That's a guaranteed thing. You can change you. You can try to manipulate and change other people and they may fall in line, but in the long run, you're not changing them. You may be frustrating them. If you want to change something, change yourself. And in changing yourself, maybe it will work on them to want to change. Does that make sense? 
Just think of all these stories we just read and how they may look a little bit different. And here's something to think about. If that person that you have unforgiveness to has gone on to be with the Lord, have a talk. Have a talk with God. Maybe the Lord would have you go to another family member or something. I don't know. But the Lord wants you to still deal with it. You can learn to forgive somebody, even if you can't talk them about it. You can work through it. He's a great big God, you guys. He's a great big God. You don't have to live with unforgiveness and bitterness and physical ailments and all those things that it causes. You can let it go. Not so it'll happen again, but you can let it go. Gail, if you could come, that would be great. This morning, on their way in, uh, if, if you didn't receive a communion cup, Chris, could you grab that? If you would hold up your hand, Chris is going to bring you one if you, if you want to take communion with us. Um, there's one there, Chris. Just he'll do that. So we're going to close our time by taking communion together. I know it's a little different from what we're doing, but there it is. As we take communion in remembrance of Jesus, may you be reminded of how much he has forgiven you. Did you hear me? We take communion in remembrance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why did he do it? Did he just do it to do it? He did it for the forgiveness of our sins to make a way back to the Father. So remember how much he has forgiven you. Be reminded of it. And then, with that remembrance in mind, how he calls us to seek forgiveness and forgive others. He forgave us so we could seek forgiveness and forgive others to model the life of Christ. As we reflect and prepare our, our heart for communion, we're going to partake together in just a second. Listen to these words found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 17. If you want to close your eyes for a minute, I just want you to listen to these words as you prepare your heart, as you're reminded of what the Lord Jesus did for you, as you're reminded of how he calls you to do the same in the area of forgiveness, listen to these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, born again disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell 
in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or, do, in, or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you hold the bread up to the Lord if you're comfortable with that? Lord Jesus, we hold this in remembrance, this, this wafer. We hold it. We know it's just symbolic of your broken body, Lord, because we're here to remember your broken body, your body freely given for each of us. Fully man, fully God, come from heaven to give us the greatest gift of all, the gift of forgiveness. And God, as we take to remember how you forgave us, I pray each one of us would allow you to settle any unforgiveness in our heart. And Lord, show us somebody we may need to go ask forgiveness of. Let's partake of the, the bread together. And Lord, now as we hold the cup, as we hold this cup, Jesus, we also realize that it represents the blood that flowed from Calvary. Oh, the blood. Oh, the blood. The blood, the Bible says the blood represents life. The blood that flowed from Calvary gave each and every one of us so much life. It sets us free from bitterness. It sets us free from unforgiveness. It sets us free from besetting sin. It, it sets us free from so many things. But Lord, today we reflect and we remember how, how you can set us free and help us grow in this whole area of, of forgiving ourselves and others. We hold this cup and we remember you this morning. May we do the same with others in our life and forgive. Let's partake together, church. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you gave me the strength and courage to give your word today. It's only through your spirit that we can do all these things. And again, Lord, I pray, I hope, I cry out to you that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. That we would take these personal problems and people from Second Kings, or excuse me, First Kings chapter 2, and we would understand that we don't need to leave them where they are and let them fester, but we can deal with them that we can literally strike them down in Jesus' name. So help us to do that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.